All right, you may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And if you need a Bible, just uh, raise your hand and we will provide one for you. Acts chapter 13, and we're going to start at verse 13. Go all the way down to verse 43. These words penned by Luke, a historian, a physician, most importantly a lover of Christ. He wrote these words under the inspiration of the Spirit, so this is God's word to you. Starting at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witness to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep 
and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you have sent this man, Jesus, to pay the price for sins. Oh God, I love the scripture that was read earlier from Isaiah 53, talking about how Jesus was counted among the rebels. And when it talks about rebels, it's not talking about other people, it's talking about me. And it's talking about everyone in this room. We are the rebels. We are the insurrectionists. We are the ones that have gone our own way and decided to exalt ourselves above God. And we are worthy of death. And we are worthy of condemnation. We are worthy of eternal separation from God and hell. And yet, God so loved the world that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And not only did Christ die, but he was raised from the dead, defeating death. So that all who would believe in him should have eternal life and they too conquer death with Christ. Thank you so much, God, for sending Jesus Christ to do these great things. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who does not believe that today they would and would receive eternal life and receive the hope of resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Deemer, and thank you, Mark, for leading us in that time of worship. I love that little bridge there in, the, in that new arrangement of Jesus paid it all. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. That's what we're here to do every Sunday is to praise the one who paid our debt and raised us up from the dead. That's why we're here. That's the purpose of what we're doing. We are back in Acts 13. Um, let me grab my cup of water here. I'm still struggling with these allergies, although I am on three different types of steroids this morning. So I was joking with the guys, I'm on preaching enhancing drugs this morning. So if I knock this one out of the park, you'll have to put an asterisk beside it at the, you know, in, the, in the history books, all right? But um, anyway, hopefully today I can get through it without coughing and wheezing like I have been the last couple of Sundays. We are back in Acts 13 as we continue to journey through uh, the book of Acts verse by verse in the He Reigns series, The Sovereignty of God and the Gospel in Acts. Acts 13 was a great place to pick it back up. We had stopped for the summer, but it was a great place to pick it back up because this is really the beginning of the second half of the book of Acts. This is a transition point in the book of Acts. We've seen the gospel, this message that Jesus paid our debt and, and, and has raised us up from the dead. This mess, gospel message is spreading now. Just as Acts 1.8 Jesus said it would and told his people to do it. He, 
the gospel has spread from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria. And now in Acts 13, in earnest, we see the beginning of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, as I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, this is a transition period from a focus on Jerusalem being the center point of gospel expansion to Antioch. And we've looked at this church in Antioch for a couple of weeks. Uh, Also, from it being a mostly Jewish-based uh, church with a majority of Jewish people to a Gentile-based church with a majority of Gentile people. And then also just a, a transition from a guy by the name of Peter, who was primarily the apostle to the Jews, to Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles. From this point forward in the book of Acts, primarily Luke is going to focus on what Paul does in his missionary journeys. Last week in the passage we studied, the first part of Acts chapter 13, we breezed over a verse that I want to go back and mention real quick here. Verse 9 of chapter 13, it says, this is right when, right before uh, Paul was about to have his little spiritual smackdown with Bar-Jesus. He says in verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul. So Luke brings our attention to a change in Saul's name. It's just kind of real brief. It's just part of the narrative here. But I believe it's significant. There's something happened here. There's a reason Paul changes his name from Saul to Paul. And I believe it's rooted in his calling. I believe it's rooted in who he has been called to be. In Acts 26, 15, as Paul is recalling and remembering what Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus, where he had his conversion experience, this is what he says in Acts 26, verse 15 and following. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. He said, who, uh, after Jesus has blinded Paul, Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now this was Saul's conversion experience which um, some believe may have been up to 15 years, at least 7 years. But maybe between 7 and 15 years earlier than Acts 13. So this has been a while since he had this calling. And we know that he's spent some time in, in Arabia, probably a year in, in the desert in Arabia. We know that he spent some time in, uh, in Antioch. He was in Jerusalem for a little while. But his ministry, outward ministry to the Gentiles, hasn't really begun yet until Acts chapter 13. So I believe that he knows that God has now opened the door. God has now made the way for him to fulfill his calling. And because God has opened this door, it's time for him to change his name. Saul was a Jewish name. It was the name of Israel's first king, if you remember. Paul was a Greek name, a name that would have um, brought down some communication barriers, if you will. My name is Steve, and when I lived in Ecuador, um, and for those of you in here who might be Hispanic and can relate to this, um, it's hard for a Spanish person to say the S at the beginning of a word if it's not followed by a vowel. And so Steve, they would usually put a vowel in front of that and call me Steve. Steve, and that was just what I was used to being called. But it was much easier if I introduced myself as Esteban. That was that's because that's my Spanish name. That's what my name would be in Spanish. 
And so Esteban made, made more sense to just introduce myself that way. And so it brought down certain natural communication barriers. So I think that's what's happening here. Paul has just gone into uh, Cyprus. They've gone into the synagogue. But the only person we read of being saved in this first leg of the missionary journey was a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus, who was a Roman um, governor on the island of Cyprus. So Paul, I think he's realizing, yes, God is now opening the door for me to carry out my calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he changes his name. The name Paul, Paulos, it means little. It may have been even a nickname, but it means little, and it may give us an idea of Paul's physical appearance. 2 Corinthians 10.10 says, this is what the people in the church in Corinth were complaining about Paul. This is what they would say. Uh, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. So they weren't impressed with his preaching. They weren't impressed with how he looked, but his letters sure were bold. And so it may have been because he was a small guy. Some people think that he was bald. So he's a short, bald guy, and apparently not the greatest speaker in the world, but certainly one of the greatest preachers uh, in the history of the church, simply because he was so in tune with the heart of Christ, and his theology was simply amazing. It was inspired. It was given to us by the Holy Spirit and written down for us in the New Testament. Regardless, from this point forward, he's called Paul. Also from this point forward, another shift, he is now clearly the leader of the missionary journey. He is now clearly the leader of this missionary journey. He, he takes the lead after Paphos here, after this confrontation with Bar-Jesus, and after the teaching of Sergius Paulus and, Paul, and Sergius Paulus's subsequent conversion, Paul now is clearly the leader. Up until this point, it's always been referred to as Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Look at the very beginning of the first verse that we read here today, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and came to Persia in Pamphylia. So now the missionary group isn't called Saul and Barnabas. It's called Paul and his companions. So clearly from this point forward, Paul is the leader. Another significant thing happens in this passage, in this verse. It says, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Who is John? This is John Mark. He was mentioned earlier. He's their helper. He's Barnabas's cousin. He was there to help them. Um, he is, John Mark is the person who will eventually write, who did eventually write the Gospel of Mark. So he ends up being an extremely important person in church history. But for some reason, here in this passage, he leaves them and he returns to Jerusalem. Now we're not sure why he leaves. Maybe he's upset that his cousin Barnabas has been demoted. Maybe he's frustrated. Wait a second here. I came to go on journey with Barnabas and Saul, not Paul and his companions. And so maybe that's the issue. Maybe he's homesick. A lot of people speculate that he's a young guy and and he just can't handle the rigors of this journey and he's homesick and he's going to head home. Maybe he's frustrated that, that, that he's beginning to see more of a focus on the Gentiles. We know that frustrated a lot of people in the Jewish church at the very beginning. Wait a second here. Why are we taking the gospel directly to the Gentiles? I doubt that's the case here, but some have speculated that. Some have speculated that maybe he was just scared. When they landed there in Pamphylia, they were, they were landing, um, in between Perga, where they're at now, where they're docked, and Antioch, where they're heading, lies the Taurus Mountains. And the Taurus Mountains were notoriously difficult terrain. Steep cliffs, rivers that were prone to flooding, and lots of thieves. So maybe he was scared to go through these mountains. Maybe he was sick. Uh, but maybe this, maybe the romance and the glamour of being on mission 
had just worn off. Um, having been on the mission field, not as a missionary, as a missionary kid, uh, I ex- remember meeting families who would only stay on the mission field for six months, three months. Some would be there for a year and go. But you could almost tell the families that weren't going to stick it out. That the, It all sounds wonderful to be on mission for God. And yeah, I'm a missionary and I've got my language training. And then you get there, all of a sudden, mm, it's not quite all that you thought it was going to be. Sometimes ministry work in general. Planting a church sounds so romantic, so awesome. I'm going to go plant a church. And it's just not that easy. And sometimes that excitement and that romance of the situation just wears off. And perhaps that's what's happened here with young John Mark. But this is a significant event because if you know the book of Acts well, you know that John Mark's leaving will cause a major rift between Paul and Barnabas in chapter 15. And uh, the story will eventually have a happy ending, and we'll wait till we get to chapter 15 before talking about that. But let's continue with today's passage, verse 14. It says, But they went on from Perga <coughs> and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, this is a different Antioch. This is not the Antioch they launched out from. This is a different Antioch. And on Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, again, if you remember from last week, this is Paul's missionary strategy. The synagogue is the best place for him to start preaching the gospel. It's a place where the people would be more inclined to hear from the Jewish scriptures about the Jewish Messiah. And as I mentioned last, place, last week, it wasn't just a message about the Jewish Messiah. It was about a message about the Messiah who would come for all people. And therefore the Gentiles who were present in the synagogue, and there would be Gentiles present in the synagogue because there were God-fearers, when you see that in Scripture, that's referring to a Gentile who fears the Lord. And there are also proselytes. There were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, and they're there too. If, so they hear the message of the Messiah, and it applies for them as well. The synagogue was basically, it was a house of worship for the Jewish people, but it was much more than that as well. It was a school. A lot of the Jewish families would oftentimes send their children to the synagogue to be educated, to learn how to read, to learn how to write. It was a social gathering place. It was a judicial center. It was really the center, the hub of Jewish community, kind of like a civic center would be today. It was like the civic center for Jewish people living outside of Palestine. And they usually had, whenever they had their worship um, services or whenever they came together for worship, they kind of had an order to worship, kind of like we do. We have an order of worship on Sunday morning. And it usually began with the reading of the Shema, that's Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, which is sort of the Jewish confession of faith, if you will. Then they would have prayers, and then there would be a reading from the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then there would be a reading from the prophets. And then that would be followed by a teaching. And usually the elders of the synagogue would do the teaching. But occasionally when a visiting rabbi was in town or a visiting Jew of significance was in town, they would invite them to bring a word and to share with the people. And so that's what we see happening here in this passage, verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets... The rulers, or that could be translated elders, of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, they sent a message to Paul and Barnabas. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So maybe they recognized Paul here. He was a former Pharisee. He could even be wearing a Pharisee's prayer shawl. Who knows? But for whatever reason, they asked him to bring a word. And Paul is a preacher. And that's all the invitation he needed. Do you have something to say, brother? Absolutely. So he steps up 
and delivers what we have here is the very first sermon that we have recorded of Paul's in Scripture. It's the first sermon that we have recorded from the Apostle Paul in all of Scripture. He's been doing ministry for several years now, but this is the first one we have written down. So he's, pray, he's, he's preached before, but this is the first recorded one. So he gets up. He gets up and delivers what has become a pretty standard, common gospel sermon in the book of Acts. And this is the meat of what we're going to talk about today. Um, This is the meat of the message that they're taking to the world. I've entitled today's passage, The Message of the Mission. What Paul's about to deliver here, what Paul's about to say here, is what they are taking to the world. It is the Word of God that is spreading. It is the Word of God that's increasing all over the world. It is the teaching that Sergius Paulus was astonished at. What Paul is about to deliver here is exactly what saved Sergius Paulus, this message. This is the Word. This is the Gospel message. So the last two weeks we've seen in the church in Antioch that it was an outward-focused church because they were inwardly strong. And they were inwardly strong because they took teaching seriously. And that's why they had five teachers in the church. This was a one-year-old church plant. And they had five teachers in the church because they took teaching seriously. And then we saw last week that this was an unstoppable unstoppable missionary endeavor because it was spirit-led and what? It was word-centered. What do I mean by word-centered? I mean it was gospel-centered. So this is the teaching. What we hear from Paul now is the gospel, the teaching, the word that has gone forth and that they're endeavoring to take to the ends of the earth. Now, kids, how many of you guys in here like to race and to run? Are any of y'all fast runners? Okay, Garrett's a fast runner. Okay, Olivia loves to run and to race because she thinks she can beat all the boys in racing. And, you know, from what I've seen, she usually can. She's a pretty fast runner. Okay? And so... If you like to run, if you'd have lived 500 years ago in the Inca Empire, you may have been one of these guys. Let me bring up this next picture here, if my clicker's working, which it's not. Okay, that right there is what you call a chasqui. A chasqui was a, was a, a, had a special job in the ancient Incan Empire. I remember learning about chasquis when I was a kid because I lived in Ecuador, which was where the Incas had lived. And so we learned a lot about Incan history. And the chasquis had a special job. They were to run with a message. That's basically all they did. They had a message and they were to run with it. it was, this was the postal service of the Inca Empire. And they were running on their feet and they could get a message from Cusco to Quito, hundreds of miles away, in just a couple of days. So actually they're more effective than the United States Postal Service. All right, And so they would run, they would have this horn which would herald their coming. We're coming, we're coming, and they'd blow this horn because it would be like a relay. There'd be another chasqui waiting. They would run for 30 miles or something, run into another, and hand off the message. The message is contained in those things he's holding in his left hand there. It, was a, it was usually would hang around their wrist, and it's a bunch of uh, knots tied into a rope. And the message is in the knots. It's kind of coded, if you will, kind of, kind of a Morse code of the Inca Empire. It's absolutely fascinating. So the chasqui couldn't know. He didn't really know what the information was because usually it was for the, for the Inca king, the emperor, whatever. But in this case with Paul and Silas, they know the message, and they've got a message that they're carrying, and they're heralding it. That's what preaching is. It's the proclamation, the heralding of God's word. And so these chaskis back in the Inca empire would run out and take the messages all over the Inca empire. And what we're seeing with Paul here is that he and his companions are like chaskis. They're gospel chaskis, 
and they're taking the message out. They got this horn in their left hand, not a physical horn, but they're heralding the gospel. That's what preaching is. It's heralding, proclaiming, shouting out the gospel message. And they have a, per- they have a perfect message, an important message that they've got to take to all the people. And so what we see here is that message. What we have here as we're studying today is the heart of the message. This is, I want to point out this morning, three basic elements of this gospel message that were part of the gospel message then and should be part of the gospel message today. But before before we get to these three, let me just say a word about preaching. Preaching gets a bad rap in today's world. Okay, preaching gets even a bad rap today amongst some evangelical circles. Uh, today, a lot of preachers are called communicators instead of preachers, or conversation leaders instead of preachers. But the Bible clearly, clearly says that there is a place for a prophetic proclamation and heralding of God's word that is unique to preaching. It is an important part of the church. The sermon at Pentecost was instrumental to Pentecost. When Peter stands up, he doesn't say, hey guys, gather around the table here. Let's just, let's just have a conversation. You talk, I'll talk. No, he got the he got Bible out. He preached Joel. He preached Psalms. He preached to the people. So sermon preaching was essential to the beginning of the church. We read that preaching was essential when Stephen, when the persecution broke out to the church and the gospel continued to spread... Because preaching was the center of what they did. Stephen sat in, right there in front of the Sanhedrin and preached a sermon to those guys. A sermon from the Old Testament, filled with Old Testament, and just preached it to them. We read that Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel. Preaching is important part of the gospel communication. In its Acts 1 trajectory, Acts 1-8 trajectory to the ends of the earth, Preaching plays an important role in the gospel spread. And so I believe that preaching is vital to the church today. And when we abandon preaching, we abandon God's primary tool for getting the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand. See, Paul's a good preacher. He motioned with his hand. Right? I, I, that gives me liberty to do whatever hand motions I want to do. All right? So I use my hands a lot. Some people say too much maybe. I don't care. Paul motioned with his hands. I'm going to motion. So Paul stands up. He's a preacher. He motions with his hands. Okay? And he's going to give us three essential parts of the gospel, three essential pieces that he wanted to preach. The preaching of Acts heralded the truth of these three things. Number one, first thing I want us to look at. Y'all are going to have to click it for me up there because it's not, not working from back here. First thing that we see here in the preaching of Acts is that it heralded the truth that, number one, God's will prevails over all of history, and all of history points toward Christ. God's will prevails over all of history, and all of history, every single bit of it, points toward Christ. The preaching in Acts is saturated with that concept. Let's read. Let's just read through the next few verses and let it come out. Verse 16, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Okay, that means there were Jews and Gentiles present. The God of this people Israel chose. So God's the one who's active. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers 
and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he lifted them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying, he destroyed, not them, after destroying, it refers to God, seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he, God, had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior as he promised. That's 14 references in those few verses, 14 references to God's providential, active proactive role in the history of Israel. Clearly, Paul was making a point that God himself was in absolute total control of history, and all of that history was pointing to the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. God chose Israel. God made them great while they were in Israel. Remember, it was God's design to get them there. And God even used the sinful acts of man... Joseph's brothers, to get them where he wanted them to be. So God made them great in Egypt. God led them out. God put up with them. In that passage here where it says God put up with them, it can mean two things. It can mean two things. And, and there's convincing arguments either way, and actually both of them are true. This, this word, this verb for putting up with, uh, if there's one slight little slash mark on one of the letters in the Hebrew, it, makes, it means that God nursed them or took care of them while they were in the wilderness. If that little slash mark is missing, it means God just put up with them with all their whining and complaining. Both were true. God nursed them through the wilderness and he put up with their whining and their complaining. And we'll just have to ask God which one was the right one when we get to heaven. But both of them were true. God destroyed the nations of Canaan. God gave them the land. God gave them judges. God gave them a king. God removed the king he gave them. And God raised up another king, David. By the way, it's intentional here. When Paul says he raised up David, that's the exact same phrase that he'll use here in a second about raising up Jesus. It's intentional. He's using resurrection language. The phrase, just in Hebrew, just like it can mean in English, could mean raise up as far as lift up and, and put someone into a position. And it can also mean raise up from the dead. And so he's using intentional language here, referring to David being raised up as a king. God found David. It was God. It was God who, from the line of David, brought a Savior. And we know that it was God himself who is the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son. All of human history has pointed to Christ. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him, Jesus, be glory forever. Christian, we need not be anxious and worried about where history is going. We need not be all worked up about the historical events of our day, no matter how much they may bother us, no matter how much we may feel the world is in upheaval, all of history, recent history, ancient history, 
is in God's control. And all of it from Genesis 1-1 to the very, this moment right now, uh, 1040 on Sunday. Is it really that late? Wow. All right, we're keeping, we're going to go strong though. Put an asterisk beside the sermon. I'm on drugs today. We're going to keep on going. To this moment right now, Jesus Christ is who history has pointed towards. And so we should be the most secure people in the world. If you're a Christian and you're in Christ, you should be the most secure person in the world. I'm not saying that world events shouldn't upset you. When 9-11 hit, and y'all have heard me say this before, when 9-11 hit, I was profoundly disturbed. I really was in my heart in how many Christians were just torn apart with fear. Like, what's going to happen next? I remember there was a women's Bible study at First Baptist Church in Bentonville, Arkansas, where I was that morning, and we had the TVs on, and we were watching what was unfolding on TV. I can remember every detail of that day, but as you probably can as well. We're watching these horrible events unfold, and you hear wailing coming from downstairs in the church basement where a bunch of the wives were meeting, a bunch of ladies were meeting for a women's group, and they were scared that the next plane was going to land on the Walmart headquarters where most of their husbands worked. And I can understand their fear and the emotion of the moment, but... That fear just continued over the next few weeks. And I didn't understand why Christians could be so overrun with fear. When you know God's in control, not a single airplane flies into a building anywhere without God's providential knowledge. And God's still holding the atoms of that airplane together. He could have caused it to boom, dissolve right before it hit the building. And he didn't. Because he's in control of history. And everything, including 9-11, points to Jesus. Because 9-11 demonstrates the depravity of the world and the evil of mankind and the weakness of all other methods of religion where people try to work their way to God. There's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. And 9-11 points to that. So does every event in history. And so Christian, be at peace. Be at peace. I think that's why Paul could say to the believers in Romans 13, submit to the emperor. Submit to the authorities. Peter told them the same thing. So does Titus. And these were emperors who were persecuting Christians. Nero would use Christians. He would put them up on a pole, douse them with, with some sort of flammable liquid and light them as torches to light up his garden. And Paul says, submit. Because Christian, you know, you should know, that God is in control of history and all of it points towards Jesus, even your martyrdom, if he so chooses, for that to be your role would point towards Jesus. Daniel 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel 4.7 says this, this was a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. It says, To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. God has always been in control of all the kingdoms of men. <coughs> and I've got a bunch of other passages down here, but I don't need to read them this morning. The Bible's filled with it. The preaching of Paul and the preaching of Peter and the preaching of Stephen... And all the early church preaching was saturated with the sovereignty of God over all things, over all of history, even over the worst sin ever committed in the history of mankind, which is what? 
the murder of the Son of God. There can be no sin worse than that one. It's the worst sin committed in the history of mankind. And listen to what the early church joyfully proclaimed in Acts 4.24. We've already read this and studied it, but it's worth reading again. Sovereign Lord, this is a prayer that they're praying. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Listen to this. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, they, all these people were gathered together to do, to sin, to do something, which was the murder of Christ. But verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand had, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is in sovereign control over everything, including the worst sin in the history of mankind. So, first thing I want us to see this morning is that one of the major themes pulsating through the first sermons in the history of the church, go back and read Peter's sermon, go back and read Stephen's sermon, one of the first themes pulsating through the first sermons of the church was the prevailing sovereignty of God over all of history and the fact that all of history points toward Christ. But another major element of the early sermons that we see in this sermon today as well as the other ones, is number two. (coughs) Number two. The teaching that God's word is filled with all his promises, and all his promises are fulfilled in Christ. So not only does God's will prevail over all of history, and all of history point toward Christ, God's word is filled with all of his promises, and all of his promises are fulfilled in Christ. It's another one of the major teachings of these early Sermons. When Peter stands up to preach Christ crucified, he starts by going back to Joel chapter 2, if you'll remember. And he took that promise of God about the last days, and then he went to Psalm 16, a passage that Paul also uses today. And then Peter went to Psalm 110. Peter used the Old Testament to show that it pointed towards Christ, and all the promises within the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, in Acts 4.39, he could stand up and say, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom call, who calls on the name of the Lord. I'm sorry, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So he can stand up and say, the promises are for you in Christ. The promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. And they're yours through Christ. If you remember Stephen's sermon, you'll remember that it was a very detailed history of Israel. And the condemnation of Israel's continual rejection of the Lord and his work. God's word. God, the Old Testament is God's record of his great and glorious promises for his children. And those promises only come to full realization through and in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is himself the great promise of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. It's the great promise of the Messiah that begins right there in Genesis chapter 3. Or the great promise of Samuel in 2 Samuel 7. Actually, this was Nathan who prophesied this to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, 
and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. That was a prophecy more than just about Solomon, David's immediate son, who would build the temple. It was a prophecy about an eternal kingdom that Christ would rule over. That's what the promise was about. And it's through Jesus Christ that we can have the promise that God wanted for his people. In Jeremiah 31, 31, God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Listen to these promises. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All the great promises of Scripture, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, Jesus. That is why through Him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. The problem here is that the Jews, specifically the Jews in Jerusalem, but the Jews in general, had missed the fulfillment of the promises that their own Scriptures had pointed towards. Paul goes on in this sermon in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, meaning the Messiah. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This was the first thing that the Jewish people missed. This was the first promise that they missed. For God had promised in Isaiah chapter 40 that he was going to send one who was going to prepare the way of the Lord. Or Malachi 3.1 which says this, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They missed it. He's coming. There's going to be a messenger. And the Jewish people had missed the first promise that was the signal of the coming Messiah. But Paul goes on to pick it back up in verse 26. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because, listen, they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They had missed it. They had not seen what all of God's word and all of God's promises had been pointing towards. John 5, 3, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Everything in the Old Testament points towards Jesus. They wanted the promise of the scriptures. They wanted the eternal life. They wanted to, for God to be their God and for them to be his people. They wanted that. But they missed it because they failed to realize the promised fulfiller was there. And therefore they ended up, by rejecting the one who fulfilled the promises, they end up fulfilling prophecy themselves by condemning him and by killing him. Verse 28. And though they found no, in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. 
And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. And when they, the people, had carried out, they sinned, the Israelite people, the Jewish leaders, the Roman authorities, when they had carried out, so they sinned, but what did they carry out? Everything that was written about him. So God was still sovereign over it all. They carried out what God had said was going to happen to his own son and laid him in a tomb. And God used their sin as a fulfillment and a further carrying out of his promises. They killed him, but God raised him. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news, this gospel. We bring you gospel news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And also it is written in the second psalm. So now Paul's going to go use some Bible here. He's going to go to the psalms. He's going to preach from the word to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises. As he said in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Picking it up in verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul appeals to the apostolic witness that Christ was indeed alive and that God had triumphed and that the promises had been kept. And he backs it up with scripture. Psalm 2, 7, Isaiah 55, 3, and Psalm 16, 10. You see, all the word of God points to Jesus. Thus, to be a gospel-centered church or a cross-centered church or a Christ-centered church, which are all synonymous, is to be a word-preaching church. All the word, for it's all the gospel, and it all points to Jesus. Luke 25, 27, Jesus speaking to the two guys on the road to Emmaus. He said, and beginning with, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the thing, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We don't have time to go over the list. I compiled a list yesterday of prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled and where they corresponded in the New Testament. And it takes up two pages. And these are just about Christ. There's other prophecies as well. Just the prophecies about Christ. Guys, I'll tell you this. One of the strongest arguments, one of the strongest arguments for the inerrancy of Scripture the infallibility of Scripture, the historical truth of all the passages of Scripture, one of the strongest arguments is the completed prophecies that were completed in such detail that it blows your mind. You go to Psalm 22 this afternoon and read it. It looks like a snapshot of the cross. Or Isaiah 55 that we read earlier. It looks like a snapshot of the cross, like someone had the ability to spring into the future and take a picture. And no man did have the ability, but God had the plan, and he revealed it to David in Psalm 22 even if David wasn't quite sure of what all he was writing about. So we've seen two basic elements of the gospel truth preached in the early sermons of the church. One, that God prevails over all of history and that all of history points to Christ. Number two, that God's word is filled with all of his promises and all of his promises are fulfilled in Christ. And finally, number three, if you guys will bring it up for me back there. Number three, God's wish is freedom for all his children and all his children find freedom in Christ. God's wish is freedom for all his children, and all of his children find freedom 
in Christ. Paul finishes his sermon with what all sermons should end with, a call for repentance and turning to Christ. Verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, listen to this beautiful verse, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what, it, what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So he's calling all the people to experience freedom. Experience freedom that cannot be attained through the keeping of the law. This was the great stumbling block of the Jews. If they could keep the law, somehow they could be right with God. This is the great stumbling block of all men, isn't it? You go out to the street today and ask someone what it takes to get to heaven nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, right, Peter? They will say, I've got to be good. I've just got to be good. The reason they feel that way is because the law is written on their heart. And their conscience bears witness to it. And so they feel that I've got laws I've got to keep here, so I've got to be good. And so what Paul does, and what Peter does, and what Stephen does, and what any gospel New Testament church should do is to point them and say, Look, yes, there is a law, and you are not keeping it, and you can't keep it. You're unable to. Neither am I. There's a law giver and a law keeper. That law keeper is Christ Jesus himself. He's done it on our behalf. And so that's where the freedom is. It's not from keeping the law. They were so concerned with keeping the law that they missed what the law was pointing towards. They missed the one who had kept it perfectly for them. So Paul calls them to repent, to receive Jesus and be free. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed, is what, John, what Jesus said in John 8. This word freed here can mean justified. Some of your translations may say justified. Justified or acquitted or put right with a judge or released from a sentence. That's what freedom is. You're released. The chains have been broken. You're released if you believe on him. So Paul makes an appeal to freedom, but he also gives a warning of judgment. Habakkuk 1.5 is what he quotes there at the end. So good preaching, good preaching appeals to the glorious truth and joyous promise that we can be free in Christ, but it also boldly warns that if you do not turn to Christ... You do not embrace him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Your guilt is still on you and you will be condemned. That is the simple truth of the gospel. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. If you do not embrace Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone, for the salvation of your soul rejecting your ability to work your way to heaven and saying, God, I can do nothing on my own. I need you alone. I'm putting all my weight, all my hope, all of my being on you. Please save me. If that is not what you have done, you are not saved. It's that simple. The gospel is Jesus apart from works. This gospel preaching, the temptation... I feel it every Sunday. The temptation is just to give you the good stuff. Freedom! And not warn you of hell. 
Because hell rubs everybody the wrong way. And saying that Jesus is the only way to freedom in today's world rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. God's wish is freedom for all his children. And all of his children find freedom in Christ. God knows who his children are. All of his children find freedom in Christ. This is the gospel message. This is what Paul the gospel chasky was running out to the world to proclaim. To herald as loud as he could. To bring that perfect message of salvation to the people. This is what we today, separated by a couple of thousand years, this is the same message that we today are to take to the world. It hasn't changed one bit. It's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come to you and close in prayer, Lord, I just pray, Father, that you'd keep us a gospel-centered church. <coughs> Lord, I, I do. I do feel the temptation I feel the temptation when I read ministry magazines that tell you how to be an innovative church or that um, tell you how to draw a crowd, how to be more relevant, how to be more creative. And I feel myself being drawn to spending my energy trying to think of those things. How can we be more creative? When... The gospel message doesn't need any creative twists. It's the same. So God, forgive me for wasted energy sometimes. And God, help us to remain faithful. Faithful to the message. Faithful to carry it. Faithful to preach it. Faithful to share it. Faithful to invite people to come hear it. Faithful to live it. Faithful to saturate our conversations with it. God, may we be a people that really do believe that you're not a God who, who, who wound up world history like a toy and then just let it go and to see what was going to happen. But you are intimately involved in every piece of every historical event from the beginning of the world till now. Yet you're perfect and without sin. And you allow men to fail and to fall and to, to commit atrocities. And you still work it into your plan. That's a mystery that blows my mind. And God, help us to be a church that that, that really, really focuses on the Word. That all of your promises are fulfilled in Christ. And that all the Word, from Genesis 1 to Revelation, all of it, all of it's inerrant. All of it's infallible. All of it is to be preached. Even the parts that make us a bit uncomfortable or that are a bit strange to us. Help us to be a gospel-centered church, which means we'll be a word-centered church. And finally, Lord, help us to proclaim freedom. Lord, I do not want us to be a church where people feel like they got to do stuff to be right with God or do stuff to be a good Christian. God, there's no stuff to do. You already did it all, Jesus. All we've got to do is, is to rest on you and let you do whatever you want with our life, which will mean we'll end up doing some good stuff. So God, I pray this morning that you would just make the gospel such an important part of this church that we will, these, these elements here will be a continual part of the message that goes out of the doors of this church into this community. So now, Lord, as we respond in prayer and in giving 
and in singing and in perhaps praying over helping orphans in Liberia. Lord, let it all be done for you. And let it all be for your glory. For, for, for through you, for from you, through you, and to you, Jesus, are all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as we just close with a song and a time to respond. The time of response is for all of us.